establishing some kind of interface between the words in the text and the reality of our lived life. Because the Bible is not about a never-never land. It's about real people experiencing the purpose and will and presence of God in their actual lived life. So what kind of a life are we living? you know any poor people? Are there any poor people in your community? Have you ever talked to them? Have you ever found out what their life is like? Would you like to know about that? Well, what would you think if you invite a family to come talk to us about what it's like to live without food? People like that are everywhere. Maybe they're not in Iowa, but they're everywhere else. They're in Iowa, yeah. Well, there you go. Welcome, my friend. This is the Weekend Edition of the Coaching for Pastors podcast. Hey, my friend, this is Weekend Edition number 27, and today we have Walter Brueggemann, one of the most renowned Old Testament scholars of the last 50 years. This guy has written dozens of books on Old Testament writings and Old Testament theology. His probably most famous book, The Prophetic Imagination, now over 40 years in print. He's got a book called The Message of the Psalms. Another one, Our Hearts Wait, Worshiping Through Praise and Lament in the Psalms. Another one, Sabbath as Resistance. Another one, Spirituality of the Psalms. He's, he's just got Old Testament after Old Testament book. Just just fantastic. Here's one final one. Deliver Us, Salvation and the Liberating God of the Bible, part of the Walter Brueggemann Library. So five years ago, my friend Johnny and I uh, talked with Walter Brueggemann, and we talked to him about local church ministry. The reason why I'm pulling this one out of the vault is that I I used it one time, and this, this was a classic conversation when two pastors, Johnny and myself, got to sit down and talk with Walter Brueggemann about pastoral ministry, the life of the pastor, the struggles and the toil of the pastor as it all relates to the society that we live in and the culture that we live in and the struggles that we have leading our churches and leading our people. And Walter speaks directly to all those things. So uh, assume this morning or this afternoon or this evening, whenever you're listening to this, that you get a chance to sit down in a circle with Walter Brueggemann, and he's going to talk to pastors just like you. And that'll be what you're going to experience right now. We are uh, honored to have Walter Brueggemann on the podcast Dr. Brueggemann, we have both read a, a lot of your works. You've been very influential to my thinking. I know there are some pastors listening who who have missed out, and they might not know who you are. So if you could just give a little introduction of yourself, that would be very, very cool. Well, there's not much to say. I have been a seminary teacher all my life. I uh, retired from that when I was uh, 70, and I'm now 84. I am uh, ordained in the United Church of Christ. I taught at United Church of Christ Seminary in uh, St. Louis, Eden Seminary for 25 years, and then I taught at a Presbyterian Seminary in uh, Atlanta, Columbia Seminary, for another uh, nearly 25 years. 
During that time, I've written a good bit, continue to write some in retirement. Uh, and my favorite audience for my speaking and my writing are clergy, uh, because I believe that uh, pastors have uh, a most urgent task and a most difficult task. Those are my uh, closest colleagues. Dr. Brueggemann, I heard you talk one time about not having been in the pastorate, and you felt like you were protected from a lot of uh, the ills of ministry. And, uh, you know, you wrote a lot about about theology and mini- and some about ministry. But you meant, you just mentioned that you were never— you were never in that place of vulnerability in ministry. Could, could you just explain that just a little bit? Well, I did uh, I did uh, serve a church for the years I was in graduate study, so I did a little of it. But what I think is that academics, including theological academics like myself, uh, live in a very um, safe place. If you are uh, lucky and productive, you get tenure, and uh, there you are, and a pastor never gets tenure, a pastor is uh, at risk and exposed from every side all the time, Uh, and I just think it's a much tougher place to have to live. I also think it's uh, a more important task because uh, pastors have access to the real world where people face real decisions and where real economic and political policy is shaped. Uh, and all those kind of things, which which makes uh, pastors kind of frontline, at-risk people uh, in the service of the gospel in a way that a theological teacher uh, most often is not. What has your relationship been with your pastors over the years, and maybe maybe more importantly, recently in the last 10 to 20 years, while you've been retired, uh, what kind of a relationship do you have with them? I now worship at an Episcopal church uh, in Cincinnati, and the the, uh, rector, that's what Episcopal people call their pastor, the rector and I are uh, very, very close friends. Uh, We have uh, uh, great theological conversations. I think we learn from each other. Uh, I am uh, uh, very respectful of him. I am not uh, critical of him. I don't go to church to uh, grade his work. But I go to church to hear the gospel, and uh, so we have, uh, I think, a mutually uh, beneficial uh, relationship. Over time, uh, I've had uh, a lot of different relationships with pastors, some of which have been happier than others. Uh, (laughs) But on the whole, I am uh, inclined to want to be supportive of my pastor and uh, appreciative of uh, what he or she might do. So you moved to you know Cincinnati and you happen upon this Episcopal church and all I can think is what a what a blessed moment for that pastor. Some pastors have opportunity to have relationships with theologically astute people in their church. Um, I have a friend who attends our church here, uh, Duke Divinity grad, and he uh, he teaches theology at the local college, and he has been a huge resource to me and my growth as a pastor and as a person, what would you say to a pastor out there who has a desire for for theological input into his or her life, but who doesn't have a professor of theology kind of <laughs> happen through their door one Sunday? You know, what, what advice would you give to somebody who's looking to expand themselves theologically? I suppose that there's a lot of stuff on the web, but I would say that a pastor has to have a reading program 
and simply has to invest money in what books and journals cost. Yeah, I think that uh, uh, pastors need to be subscribing uh, to uh, a journal or two that uh, provide input, uh, and uh, uh, the good journals have have good book reviews, and you can spot books that are worth uh, buying. And I would think that a cluster of pastors uh, could uh, uh, have a circulating library among themselves so that not every pastor has to buy every book. But the world is changing so rapidly uh, that pastors have to keep reading, and they have to make time to do that, uh, or they're going to be relying on... Uh, stuff that they learned a long time ago that is not the most helpful stuff to know. Uh, and I think that uh, many pastors will say uh, they don't have time to read. you got to make time to read uh, because the issues require informed intelligence or otherwise we wind up uh, uh, just uh, repeating uh, comfortable cliches that our church people love, but it doesn't help anybody grow in uh, discipleship. So, Doctor B, you said that if they're not reading, uh, they're just going to, you know, be staying in the past, and that things are changing. Could could you give an example of of an area that has really changed that a pastor needs to be informed about? that if they weren't, they would not be able to speak to their congregation well? Well, I think uh, probably most pastors uh, that I know were educated in historical criticism of the Bible. What's happening now for a variety of reasons is that Scripture interpretation uh, is moving to uh, what people call post-critical interpretation, largely under the pressure of Third World uh, churches and theologians. And one has to be uh, moving to recognize uh, that we learn a great deal about reading Scripture from other parts of the Church who, are, who do not have uh, the particular uh, intellectual background that we have, but who are on the front lines about uh, issues of uh, poverty and uh, violence and all those kind of things. So we, we simply have to be in touch with those conversations, and uh, since most of the time we, we can't import uh, people from the third world to teach us that, uh, we have to be reading, uh, and uh, that would be one example of that. I think that uh, everybody knows in the wake of the recent election uh, that uh, economic issues are now very urgent for the church, and pastors have to be reading about uh, economics and and those kind of things that we thought we didn't have to bother with a generation ago. Uh, So there is an urgency about these matters. In very many communities, if the pastor is not working at this stuff, it probably means nobody is working at it. The opportunities that pastors then have uh, is enormous about these matters. So you talk about economics. Uh, could you just just uh, unpack that a little bit? What you know? Why does a pastor now have to be reading about economics in our society? Well, I have written a new book called uh, "Money and Possessions in the Bible," and I uh, commend it. If I can plug my book, please plug it. Yeah. And 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 what I uh, learned by writing that book 
is that the Bible uh, in both the Old and New Testament lives in an extractive economy whereby rich people are extracting wealth from vulnerable people. And the Bible means to resist an extractive economy and to offer an alternative. And the reason that's worth knowing is that we live in an extractive economy so that the the uh, billionaire class uh, has taken over our government and we're every day now uh, deregulating and writing laws that favor the wealthy over against the vulnerable uh, which is simply a replay of the crisis that the bible faced and uh, if the church is going to be intelligent about critiquing the extractive economy and about thinking about an alternative economy of neighborliness, we have to know, uh, we, we don't have to know the fine points of economic theory, but we have to know what that conversation is about. Uh, and I don't think we can duck it because uh, economic questions are at the forefront of uh, the gospel crisis uh, that we face in our society. So I can't resist this, Dr. B, but uh, if a pastor were to say, hey, hey, I'm preaching the gospel, I'm not getting involved in, in political or social issues, I'm preaching the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ, you know, how, do you, how would you respond to that? And how does the, this economic talk, uh, how is that connected to your definition of the gospel? Well, all you have to do is read the Bible. If you just read the Bible uh, intelligently, what you will see uh, is that money is all over the Bible. Jesus' primary teaching is about money. And I was surprised as I wrote this book to discover the way in which uh, the Pauline epistles are preoccupied with issues of money, uh, and Timothy and James and so on. Uh, It is a skewed, myopic notion to think Uh, that you can talk about salvation in Jesus Christ and not face economic issues uh, that the early church had to face. Uh, And that's all detailed in my book, um, but you don't have to read my book. What you have to do is read the Bible, and there it is. Well, I appreciate... what What I think is that very many pastors who have a myopic notion of preaching salvation in Jesus Christ just have a lot to unlearn uh, because uh, the church has been misled about those matters uh, in the modern period uh, for a very long time. Uh, And it's a very uh, distorted view of Scripture to think that that is faithful to the gospel. Well, Doctor B, if you're not going to be honest with our listeners, I'm going to have to keep. <laughs> I'm going to have to keep asking you questions. There you go. <laughs> I I really I really appreciate your your perspective, and uh, I, I heard you on an interview of several years ago, and you were saying that you felt like your writing days were probably over, and that you'd written you know what you were going to write, and that it sounds like this book has come in the last three or four years. It was last year. That's right. It was... And I, I have not uh, written a book in a long time through which I learned so much. It was the first time uh, that I ever tried to do anything scholarly about the New Testament, but, but my assignment from the publisher is that I had to go into the New Testament, and uh, I just uh, learned a great deal. So uh, 
I'm uh, I'm writing at a slower pace, uh, but I'm uh, I'm for now I'm staying at it. I don't know how much longer I'll stay at it, but uh, for now I'm still trying to work some. Yeah. Well, we are uh, glad you're continuing to write. I don't think you've said it all yet, and uh, and we appreciate it. You know, I I read in the last year uh, your book, The Prophetic Imagination, and I was blown away when I looked inside the front cover when I was done and realized that you wrote the book in like 1978. Um, It's called The Prophetic Imagination, and it's a bit prophetic, but in there you talk about, and you talk about this a lot in other books, kind of the the church as, uh, how I might say, embodying an alternative to the world or the empire. And you even got into that just now talking about economics. Talk to me about, um, you know, as we're moving into this kind of post-Christian situation, how important it is and how a pastor can wrap his head around what it, or her head around, sorry, what it means to be an alternative to the surrounding world. I would say in our situation, the dominant ideology that pretty much governs our imagination is an ideology of scarcity that there's not enough to go around, and we're going to run out. And uh, you can see that in uh, the deportation of immigrants. There's not enough, so we got to get rid of some people. You can see it in uh, voter repression. We don't want certain people to vote, because if, if they vote, uh, then they will come to power, and they will take some of our goodies. And I think that the whole uh, business about uh, Make America Great Again uh, is trying to uh, recover uh, a political economy in which a few people, a few white males, had all the privilege. So that, that ideology of scarcity uh, aims to keep everybody afraid. The alternative to that, that is grounded in the generosity of God, is that we live in a world of abundance. We do not live in a world of scarcity. The ideology of scarcity is false. Hmm. And the reason that we live in a world of abundance is that God the Creator is a God who keeps giving gifts. And God has blessed the earth with generativity and fruitfulness for all, so that the Church's witness and practice is a witness and practice of abundance that declares the ideology of scarcity to be a lie. I just think this is so unambiguous in Scripture, and it is so urgent among us. The the way in which the Church has uh, historically expressed God's abundance is by talking about grace. And uh, the, the, the Church often has been uh, seduced by scarcity to say there's not enough grace. Uh, We said there's not enough grace for women, there's not enough grace for blacks, there's not enough grace for gays, so we have to fence them out. But we know better than that. We know that God's grace is extended to women, it's extended to blacks, it's extended to gays, it's extended to all of God's creatures because there is enough. Hmm. There is enough grace there is enough bread, there is enough food, there is enough health care, there is enough of everything. 
And I think that to be baptized, the, the old baptismal liturgy said, do you renounce Satan and all his works? I think a contemporary version of that, do you renounce the ideology of scarcity? Because it is a lie. And so on and so on and so on. And, and I think we have to be at work on these issues. Concretely, how does the church you know, practice and embody abundance in the face of the ideology of scarcity? Well, it always has to be at work in two ways. On the one hand, uh, it has to be at work locally with acts of generosity, but it also has to be at work in Des Moines, shaping public policy. Hmm. The church has to be an active lobby uh, so that our legislators are not immediately captured by the lobbyists for the big powers of wealth. And it's not an either-or. It's a both-and. So you have, to, you have to practice local charity, and you have to practice uh, public justice. Uh, those are both tools for performing God's abundance. It's very difficult uh, to shake people out of the ideology of scarcity but it's a quite practical matter, uh, and uh, it's all over the New Testament. The early church was a community of generous abundance. In, in Paul's catalog of, of ethics in Romans 12, one of the phrases is, give with liberality. Dr. Brueggemann, at what point does a pastor draw the line regarding? Now, it, truth be told, we've waded into some waters that we really never wade in on this podcast. We're we're focused on ministry and encouraging pastors. And um, but since we're in here, and since you've walked into this area with us, we're just gonna <laughs> we're just gonna pick your brain, and we appreciate it. And, and for the record, pastors, it's good for us to hear people who say things or believe things that we don't maybe say or believe because it helps us to refine our own understanding of of issues and and topics. So at what point do you think a pastor should draw the line in terms of uh political involvement as a pastor or is this maybe for more for the, you know, members of the church? Is, but is there is there a line that he shouldn't cross in terms of political involvement? I think uh Pastors have to deal with political reality. I think they have, to, they have to be smart. They have to be cunning. The intention is not to make people mad or to alienate people. The intention is to help people grow in their glad obedience to Jesus. Uh, and one of the growths that I think is urgent for church people in big churches and little churches is to grow in our awareness of how the Lordship of Jesus Christ pertains to the world in which we live. So if Jesus is Lord of the economy, uh, then we have to come to terms with what we have to learn and what we have to unlearn uh, about what we have been taught about the economy of scarcity. So I don't, I don't think it's the pastor's task to bamboozle people I think it's the pastor's task to to create an environment uh, in which people can grow and learn to love the Lord Jesus uh, in uh, responsible ways that always uh, discipleship 
always calls us out of our comfort zone. Uh, it, it wouldn't be discipleship if we could just settle in our comfort zone and uh, and just sit there. When when he said, follow me, uh, he meant go with me to places where you haven't been. And uh, the pastoral task is to help people do that. And, you know, if we if we find ways to think about this, everybody in every church, everybody in every little church knows uh, that we are living in a society of death. They might not articulate it the way I articulate it, but, but everybody knows that the way we are shaping our common life is that we are putting people's lives at risk. And you doesn't you don't have to be a liberal or a conservative to recognize that. This is this might be a, a a strange question and so I apologize if it's odd. Someone at at some point in the past uh, left our church and um cited at least partially in that as as they felt that we were moving in a a far too liberal leaning direction and and I and I said do you mean liberal politically or liberal theologically and they said yes you know to both and and when I poked yeah. a little further uh, uh they they made a statement that why did we have to talk about the oppressed in our sermons why did we have to talk and I, and all I could think was because the Bible talks about it, you know, but how do you, we live in a charged climate, so politically charged, and there's all these words, and there's talk show hosts who tell people, if you hear your pastor say these words, it means that they're leaving the gospel, and there's all this stuff going on. How do you begin, just begin to walk with a church through that? A lot of pastors listening, we're, we're in uh, conservative churches, and that's neither good or bad. It's just reality, and uh, and some of these things sound like you know hot button political issues. How do we say? Let's look at what the Bible says. How do we begin that journey? Well, by looking at the Bible. Uh, <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> well, sure. <laughs> it, it seems to me you you always have to work in two ways. One uh, one way is to talk about the Bible, and the other way is to talk about people's experience. you know any poor people? Are there any poor people in your community? Have you ever talked to them? Have you ever found out what their life is like? Would you like to know about that? Well, what would you think if you'd bring, uh, invite uh, a family to come talk to us about what it's like to live without food? People like that are everywhere. Maybe they're not in Iowa, but they're everywhere else. They're in Iowa, yeah. Well, there you go. I live in a in a an affluent suburb where half our kids in our suburb are below the poverty line. Hmm. And we just don't notice them. We don't want to notice them. The churches are working at it. I don't mean to say they're not, but it's easy not to notice. So it is it is establishing some kind of interface between the words in the text and the reality of our lived life. Because the Bible is not about a never-never land. Hmm. It's about real people experiencing the purpose and will and presence of God in their actual lived life. So what kind of a life are we living? 
And, you know, if you want to go a little further about these people on radio who say blah, 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 <laughs> uh, you, can, you can raise the question about who you think's paying for that person to say that. Mm. Do, you think, do you think that behind that person there is a vested interest that wants you to perceive the world in a certain way mm. because it would be to the advantage of that person to have you see the world that way? You think maybe? It sounds like you agree with the phrase, money makes the world go round. Well, it's unarguable. <laughs> it's exactly right. And he anybody that doesn't know that can't really read the Bible. When you wrote this book, Money and Possessions, did that phrase ever come into your mind, or did that reality you know, did you face that reality even even more starkly? Well, it wasn't, you know, I had thought it well before that, but it certainly yeah. confirmed it. Yeah. Okay. Now, yeah, I think in our, in our worship service, I don't know, in your church tradition where you have uh, certain congregational responses like thanks be to God or something, my observation is that Episcopalians say all that stuff and they don't pay any attention. They don't realize what they're saying. So instead of saying thanks be to God, some Sunday we just ought to say it's the economy, stupid. <laughs> See if anybody notices. So, oh boy! Well, oh uh, yeah, this is all this is all on the table. You, you cannot uh, if you start leafing through the Des Moines Register on any given day and look for the number of news items that are about the economy. It is unavoidable. So Carl Bart, you know, said, read the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other hand, and let the two come into contact. You, you talked about the interface between the words of the text and our real lives. And it sounds like in a, in a really clear way, you know, you were talking about the application of the Scripture. And sometimes as pastors and church people, we can read the Bible and we can quote platitudes and we can put them on our plaques and nice pictures on our walls, but we never we never bring it down to real life and we, we have this separation, this disinter right. disintegration yep. of our faith yep. and our life. And and church people gladly pay pastors to keep doing that. Do they know that? Do they realize it? No, of course they don't want to realize it. Do pastors realize it? Mostly don't. Mostly do not, but that's our work. But you know, most people, mo let's say most guys, most guys in most churches, if they're not thinking about sex, they're thinking about money. <laughs> well, that's real you can talk. Count on, you can count on it. You know, when, once you cross 80, you can say anything, Dr. Brueggemann. <laughs> well, that's right. That's right. Well, you either have to be 80 or you have to have tenure or both. <laughs> or... Right. Or you have to have a podcast and invite certain guests there to come on and talk. That's right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I would just, I, I hear you saying this is exceedingly difficult for your constituents, and I understand that. But, I, but I, I, I'm, not, I'm not a huckster about my books. But if this is a, a new dangerous topic, I would encourage people to take a look at my book. And, and would I, whether you agree with me or not, what I think one would learn from my book is that these issues in Scripture are unavoidable. Yeah, I don't think that makes you a huckster for your books. Um, that That's just the reality, is if we want to think new thoughts and we want to understand the world, and I'm not even saying a different way, let's just say in a fuller way, 
then you you're gonna have to listen to people like Walter Brueggemann. You're gonna have to read books like Money and Possessions in the Bible. I mean, these are just this is just the reality. This is the water that we're swimming around in. I think that's right. Yeah, and and I and I think it is as tough as it is. It is a glorious time for pastors because we're the people that have got the true story about this stuff. Nobody else has. We got it. It has been entrusted to us, and it takes great cunning and wisdom to get this on the table among people who do not want it on the table. But it is our work. That'll preach. It'll preach you right into the (laughs) poorhouse. No, seriously, I I appreciate that. Now, I want to go back to something you said earlier. It, It jumped out at me. Because this is, it has been my life experience up until uh, probably five to ten years ago. You said you talked about the poor people. You talked about the kids that were living under the poverty line, and you said it's easy not to notice. Could you just speak to that a little bit? In you know, in our churches, a lot of small churches, I would imagine, are in maybe smaller areas where where there there aren't maybe. A, it's maybe it's not as noticeable or there just aren't as many, you know, under the poverty line. But what, why is it? Why is it easy? What is there about humanity and what is there maybe about American Christianity right now that makes it easy for us not to notice those who are in need and those who, who, ha- who experience want? Uh, I think that our imagination and our perceptual field is shaped by our economic interest. That, that is, uh, or, or, or uh, Upton Sinclair said, it is very hard to get somebody to learn something when learning it will cause him to lose his job. Mm. It is very hard for any of us to see things that work against our vested interest because we have developed the capacity not to see things that are uncomfortable or inconvenient or costly. And it's true of all of us. It's true of liberals and conservatives. So what we do is we, we in the cities, uh, the, the, the road system is constructed so that communities of poverty and race are fenced off and we don't have to go there. In cities, schools are situated to maintain segregation, etc., etc., etc. So we we do we do social engineering, and I, I think in rural communities uh, it, it's much less direct. But it also happens. I grew up in a town of 300 people in Missouri, and uh, we had a, a small African American population, and they lived over there in that little part of town where you never had to go. Hmm. And we didn't have to we didn't have to work at that. They had their own little school and they had their own little church and we got along just fine. Interesting. Now, you're an Old Testament prof. Uh you probably read a little bit about maybe guys like Moses and and maybe David. <laughs> um what, That's what, right. what do you think as a leader, right, as a leader of a bunch of uh, uh, allegedly unruly people, what do you think Moses would say to pastors today in our generation? 
I think Moses would say, you know, Pharaoh wasn't just an historical figure. Pharaoh is a metaphor for concentrated money and power. So why don't you see whether you can identify Pharaoh in your life world and then see what it would require to depart from the grip of Pharaoh. And what do you think David would say to maybe not just pastors today, uh, but to people in uh, a country like ours, which is uh, apparently, you know, the wealthiest, uh, greatest country on earth? The influence of Israel during David's time was uh, yep. was pretty significant. You know, what, yep. what what would David have to say to believers, to, to people of faith living in a society like ours? I think David uh, might say that he learned the hard way that uh, greed uh, was destructive. The, the scriptures sort of narrate the way in which he thought he was above the rules and that he learned that uh, the rules of God's governance uh, would finally defeat him and he couldn't live that way. So he ended up in Second Samuel as a very sad man because he had created a family of violence in which his sons were busy killing each other. And they were all killing each other because they imitated him. And it turned out not to be a good way to live. So that the prophecy that Nathan gives him in Second Samuel 12, he says, the sword will never depart from your house. Now, I think what we are learning in the United States is that the sword of slavery and its implications will never depart from our public life. And we keep paying and paying and paying for that travesty. Let's let the sun rise a little bit on the end of our conversation and and talk about, um, you, you talk about imagination, right, and, and perception. Yep. Yep. Give us, paint a picture for us of a, a church. Now, not a mega church, not a huge church, but paint a picture for us of a church of 100 people and what they could do living out kingdom lives, living out the values and, and let's say, the economy of God. Yeah, what does the life of that church look like? Well, I think uh, locally you have to find the places of need and uh, find out what those needs are. Let me, let me tell you, this is a little footnote, that our Episcopal bishop in uh, Cincinnati recently went to London because in London, the Church of England in London has parish churches that are growing. And the reason they are growing is that they adopted a strategy of looking at their local communities to find out what the needs were. And in London... These churches are having people join them because they are astonished that churches would pay attention to needs in local communities. Huh. So that's one facet. That, that, is, that is, ministry is a response to real need. The second one is that little churches can bind together. You can get a van full of people to connect with other people in Iowa and make a regular trip to Des Moines to lobby at the state legislature. This is, this is not magic. This is simply people being inconvenienced 
who become knowledgeable and who take a day to drive to Des Moines and to make a case about why the state government needs to appropriate money differently. And little churches can do that. There may only be two people in a little church, but there are two people in another little church down the road. And first thing you know, you got four people, etc., etc., etc. It has to do with helping people to have a horizon in which they become aware about what the rule of Christ means. And the rule of Christ means that power and money is organized to enhance neighborliness. Now, I think that requires a great deal of teaching and pastoral care. I don't think you can just whip this out and expect it to happen. Right. But but people have to be educated that that the the work of discipleship is not getting ready for heaven. The work of discipleship is creating possibilities for neighborliness. And you know what? Sometimes when we get a little older, we can become jaded. Uh, are you not ever affected by the thought that man, it's just a losing proposition to try to change human government? That's correct. It is a losing proposition. But but you're for which, for but, which, there you uh, go. but you're for encouraging which, for it. which Good Friday is our uh, dominant symbol. They they killed him. Hmm. But you know it's it's our text. It's our work. What are you going to do? So so you would still you're still encouraging us to go to the state house, even though it's a losing proposition. Every once in a while, every once in a while, good stuff happens. Every, every once in a while, not often, but often enough to keep us at it. So does and, and your understanding of the gospel of Jesus and this this second greatest commandment mandates us to do whatever we can do, including lobbying human government to try to bring relief to the least of these. That's correct. Okay. And 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 what the what the community organizing people have learned is that for a city hall or a county seat or a state legislature, if on any given day you can produce 4,000 people as a lobby protest, they will be honored and taken seriously. Hmm. So what it requires is church people to get off up the couch and to participate in the movement, because the movement is a way in which truth speaks to power and power wants to listen. There are many people in government who want to do the right thing if they thought they had support to do it. So it is a matter of making support visible. And local congregations cannot do that on their own, big ones or little ones. You have to find you have to find alliances. And I am sure that in Iowa there are those alliances. Already, you don't have to make them up. Yeah, they're already there, but you have to sign on. Doctor B, I meant to ask you earlier about your family, and we just got right into the thick of it. Yeah, we did. <laughs> and so, so yeah. hey, tell us about your family. Tell us about any kids, grandkids, maybe have, great grandkids. Uh, I, have so- I have two. I have two sons, and I have five uh, grandchildren. One of my granddaughters will be uh, confirmed in a Methodist church next month, uh, and. Uh, one of my sons is a uh, 
wholesale lumber rep uh, and a deacon, uh, an elder in his church. And uh, my other son uh, is a college teacher of sociology who uh, is involved in a Methodist church. Very cool. So, well, uh, how many years of marriage? Uh, I was recently remarried uh, six years. That's yeah. that's exciting. That's really exciting. It is for yeah. me. It is for me. That's right. <laughs> yep. Right. All right. Well, do you yep. have, do you, we always offer our guests an opportunity. Do you have any parting shots you'd like to give to small church pastors? Or honestly, pastors listen. There's pastors of churches of thousands that listen to yeah. our podcast. So any, well, uh, I'll, I'll say again what I already said. I think it's a very hard time to be a pastor. I think it's a very urgent time to be a pastor. I think, I think that the future of our society depends on churches mobilizing around the truth that is entrusted to us, and churches mobilizing around that truth depends on pastoral leadership. So pastors are really point persons for the well-being of our society. I have no doubt about that, and I think it is very, very tough. But nobody thought it was going to be a piece of cake. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) That's that's right. Well, that's that's a good word. Well, thanks for hanging out with us today. Okay, good to talk. Kind of a crusty, delightful old guy, huh? I mean, this guy literally has earned the right to speak his mind, and we, we have earned the right to sit and to listen. I love listening to people who know what they're talking about, who believe what they say, and who have done the spade work in the scriptures and in theology to understand some of these issues. And I learned a lot from listening to uh, Brueggemann in that call. He's got this series called Interpretation Resources for the Use of Scripture in the Church. The title of his book is Money and Possessions by Walter Brueggemann. That's the book he was referring to as we had the conversation. You could check that out. Pastor, uh, you may not have agreed with everything you heard Walter say. I mean, I didn't. I didn't. But... I heard a lot that challenged my lazy thinking, and I heard a lot that challenged my my complacency in ministry. And five years later, listening to it again, I was challenged all over again. What a gift. What a gift to be able to uh, spend an hour talking with him. And then I think when we had uh, stopped the recording, as usual, Johnny, I think, had a few questions for him as we had in about 10 more minutes just to chat. But Pastor, I'm so glad I could share that with you today. I hope it was challenging to you and I hope it spoke to our time and our day because five years later, not a whole lot has changed. In fact, if anything, his words are more prescient and more applicable today. And so I hope it encouraged you to just think through how you do ministry and how you might need to change and do ministry in the future. Thanks so much for joining me today. Have a great weekend, and I'll be back to talk with you again on Monday on the Coaching for Pastors podcast.